You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Thank you very much, Peter, uh, uh, Jane. Uh, um, it's lovely to see so many of you, distinguished colleagues, friends, uh, students. Uh, this is worth it. Uh, <laughs> It's an immense honor to welcome back Dr. Seragildine. Uh, Trinity College, nine years almost to the day since he received an honorary doctorate in letters uh, from our university in December 2009. And that day, in the public theater, he was greeted, welcomed as a truly Alexandrian scholar, by which we met is uh, an educator, a humanist, a scientist, and a leader. And if you know something about Alexandra's scholarship, that's what it involves. We were not alone in this view. Uh, Dr. Saradin holds, uh, I think, 38 honorary degrees from universities <laughs> all over the world, uh, doctorates in letters and sciences alike. Um, like us, our colleagues, all around the world wish to pay tribute to Dr. Saragel Dean's uh, exceptional service to global development, to reason and justice, to scientific progress, to humanities, and to humanity. He truly is exceptional. He was educated at Cairo and then Harvard. He has all his life taught and spoken and acted in the name of reason respectful innovation, education, free flow of information. I love a metaphor that he uh, uses for development. He says development is like a tree. Uh, it is nurtured in its growth if, by feeding its roots. Now, if we feed these roots, science and technology thrive, democracy and equality grow. This is one of his missions. He has also been the recipient of more honors uh, globally than I can mention from uh, uh, the, 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 old, the Golden Silver Star of the Order of the Rising Sun in Japan to the you know, knighthood <coughs> uh, at the French Legion of Honor, the Welfare Medal of the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, he has been invited to hold academic positions as prestigious as the significantly named Professor of Knowledge Against Poverty uh, at the Collège de France uh, in Paris just uh, earlier, uh, at the start of this decade. He has authored or edited over 600 books, papers, articles on virtually every scientific, social, literary subject. I don't think there's anyone here with the most uh, featuring in their reading, in their publication list, or giving uh, their own work to their students' reading list, titles as varied as Water Supply, Sanitation, Environmental Sustainability, and Inventing Our Future, Essays on Food and Democracy and Reform in the Arab World, and The Modernity of Shakespeare. <laughs> Such is uh, the immense range and 
of, of, of Dr. Stragathene's expertise and engagement with things that really matter in this world. His career has been extraordinary. Uh, one cannot count the leadership roles he has uh, had and continues to have on international develop development agencies. I name, for example, the Consultative Group on International Agricultural Research, the World Commission for Water in the 21st century. He has served the World Bank for 30 years in a number of capacity, uh, capacities, including the Vice Presidency for <coughs> Environmental and Socially Sustainable Development. In 2000, he returned to Egypt to see the completion of the Biblioteca Alexandrina, which rises, as you can see, magnificently on the site of the ancient royal library of Alexandria. That library is, as has recently been called, uh, the library of dreams. Um, the vision behind the Bibliotheca Alexandrina was to recreate for the digital age, for the third millennium, that spirit of preservation of heritage and advance of knowledge that had guided uh, the foundation of the Royal Library, uh, Library of Alexandria in antiquity. That was the place where Euclid wrote his elements in the uh, early 3rd century BC, where Eratosthenes calculated the circumference of the earth uh, uh, a few de decades later. The new Bibliotheca Alexandrina opened its door in 2002 to the world. It has the capacity for millions of books, but it also is a library for the new millennium, a digital repository of global heritage with a commitment to providing universal access to human knowledge. Its early partnership with the Internet Archive is testament to this mission, but the Bibliotheca Alexandrina is more than a library. Its importance goes far beyond that I liked a recent definition that uh, called it a beacon of enlightenment, enlightened <coughs> values for the region and for the world. That Dr. Saragidin was the founder and has been the director of the Bibliotheca for over 15 years. He remains the library's director emeritus and perfect advocate. We could not I hope you will agree, we could not have hoped for a more suited, suited and brilliant voice to inaugurate the lecture series that, uh, that Peter has just uh, 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 told you about. And we are immensely grateful uh, that Dr. Seragantine accepted our invitation. Now, without further ado, I, with great pleasure, and it's a great privilege. I give you Dr. Seragin-Dean on the rebirth and revolution, the story of the Bibliotheca Alexandrina. I am going to run through 
these topics, so something about the ancient library, a small epilogue to the destruction of the ancient library, and then the new library, and then how we reach out to Egypt first, and then the region of the world, and then what happened in the Egyptian revolution. In 2011, as you know, uh, there was the Arab Spring, and there were an enormous number of young people who went out into the streets, brought down the regime of Hosni Mubarak, and there were successive transformations that came from the time of that revolution. And then I want to mention something of special relevance and then go on to the future. So uh, every time you see a red slide like that, you know that I'm starting another of these topics, and that in a sense I'm also getting closer to the end. <laughs> so let me start that 2,300 years ago, the ancient library was a revolutionary effort. It was the first effort to organize global knowledge. There were older libraries in Egypt, older libraries in Greece, but this was the first time that all the knowledge of the world was to be brought in one place with some of the greatest minds to make it work. The grandiose idea was a stepchild of the ideas of Alexander the Great, who is known, of course, to everybody as a great conqueror, but very few people actually know that he was trained by Aristotle. Can you imagine having as your private mentor Aristotle? <laughs> 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 by Aristotle. Anyway, he went on, as we all know, and uh, conquered the known world in his time. That's the size of the Alexandrian Empire. And can you imagine it was all done on foot? <laughs> all of that to all the way to the foothills of the Himalayas, where he cried because there were no more worlds to conquer. So anyway, the death of Alexander, he died very young, under 32, and in June 323 BC, and uh, he, his body was embalmed uh, uh, in Babylon and was then retaken to Egypt. But very quickly, his empire, nobody could hold it, so his generals split it into initially four and subsequently three. But the empire, uh, and this part of it, was the part that General Ptolemy, the first place known as Soter, who took that uh, Ptolemaic Egypt and he established the Ptolemaic dynasty. Now, my story of the ancient library, life of Alexandria, is really about five remarkable women. And uh, we'll start with Ptolemy the first because Alexander came, selected the site for the city of Alexandria, moved on, went to Siwa, got told what he wanted to hear, that he was not a human being, he was a god. He said, I always do that. But <laughs> <laughs> and left Egypt never to return. So he left Ptolemy to actually build the city of Alexandria. And uh, Ptolemy had a wife, that's person number one, who was strong enough to appear on the coinage with him. And Berenike the first, she was the second wife of Soter, and she convinced him that her son, Philadelphus, the future Philadelphus, should become pharaoh or emperor or king or whatever you want to call it, after him. And we are glad that she did because it is under Philadelphus that the great library of Alexandria was really established in Calcutta. Now, in the old 
Alexandria. This is the Alexandrian city, the crossroads here. The island of Pharos, it had a magnificent lighthouse, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And around in the royal district, the Brucheon, there was the library we were able to come to. So this was the city, and it was a magnificent city, and it would remain the intellectual capital of the world for the next maybe 600, 500 years, maybe. The two marbles, the, the, the uh, lighthouse, which, for which we have accurate descriptions, and the library, which is reconstructed based on general descriptions, this particular reconstruction from Carl Sagan's Cosmos. But this one is very accurate. This one, you could describe it differently. We know it had columns, it had lintels and beams, and racks in which scrolls and scrolls were, were put, and that scholars came to study, so who knows. Uh, there is a coin that was a celebratory coin, and uh, look at this coin, because it will come back in a moment later. So what happened was that Demetrius of Phaleron, who had been tyrant of Athens, which incidentally was a title, does not have the connotation it has now, uh, had ruled for 10 years there, was kind of out of a job, and Ptolemy I uh, invited him to be his advisor. And he's the guy who came up with a crazy idea, crazy for the time. And he said to him, if you want Alexandria to be the greatest city in the world, then if the temples and the marbles and the gold is not enough. You have to bring the greatest minds to the world. And then give them nothing to do. <laughs> now, this may seem like a strange idea, but it's not actually. Think of the Institute of Advanced Studies at Princeton. And they say, Mr. Einstein, please come. We don't care whether you teach or you do research or you write or do whatever you want to do, just come. <laughs> So Gudel, please come, and so on. And it happened. Egypt was very rich in those days, so they said, okay, we'll get the hundred greatest minds. What do we do with it? So we said, well, okay, we'll create a temple to the muses. And it was called the Museon in Greek, and it was called Museum in Latin. Again, the word didn't have the connotation it has now. And it was partly to get the scholars to discuss with each other, part academy, part research institute, part uh, 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 library, archives, and uh, so were they had attached to it a botanical garden, zoological garden, uh, a dissection room, which is very important, and a library. And the library grew and grew and grew, and there was a second building, and then after the water library was attached to a temple on the other side of town, and the whole complex got known as the ancient library. And it was under the reign of Philadelphus, who ruled for 42 years, that this library began to take off after his father. So had it not been for Bereniki, we wouldn't have had Philadelphus as the successor, and who knows if the library would have even existed. They did not have, we talk about volumes, we talk about books, but they had scrolls. And uh, the scrolls were uh, actually, I mean, until 200 to 500 AD when uh, the codex takes over. The library had about 700,000 scrolls. It's the biggest repository of global knowledge anywhere in the world, and had about 100 resident experts from all fields, from poetry to mathematics and astronomy. Girl students were invited and learned there frequently. And this is one of the statues from the time, a statue, and I say to the young girls, 
children who come. No, this is not an iPad, and this is not a <laughs> this is This is actually a, a slate on which they used to write uh, as they were. So there were two marbles in Alexandria, one the, the uh, Pharos and the other one being the library. The library started growing, as I said, and they built a second, this is the original museum, they built a second building right next to the water, which would play a big role in the story. And then a third building, the library, the daughter library, in the temple to Serapis. This is the Ptolemy Goldley Foundation store selection of the Serapium inscription. You will note it's written in Greek and in uh, hieroglyphics, which is good for us that they did this because it gave us the Rosetta Stone, which enabled us to decipher ancient hieroglyphics afterwards. Now, Serapis was a very special person, special god for Alexandria. As far as I know, he's the only god created by committee. <laughs> they, had two, they had two priests from Greece, two priests from Egypt, and they were told, do something that would keep all the communities happy. <laughs> so they designed Serapis as a cult god for Alexandria. He was partially uh, Osiris, partially Apis, partially Zeus, and partially Dionysus. Dionysus was <laughs> the parties, I mean, the one parties as well. And uh, he actually built a temple for him, Serapium, where the Gopher Library was to be. And it must have worked well, because for 700 years, he was the accepted cult god of everybody in Alexandria. So this is what we know of the ancient library where it was. And our story continues through all the Ptolemaic period until you reach another remarkable lady, Cleopatra herself. Now, nobody really cares about Cleopatra 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. <laughs> or straight Cleopatra seven. She's the Cleopatra that everybody knows. But before I get to that, let me tell you about a few things that happened between the creation of the library and the idol to, of Cleopatra. Uh, Kalimachus, the great poet, was told by my predecessor, the third director, that writing poetry was all fine, but do something useful, write the catalog for the library. <laughs> so he wrote the Pinatus, 120 volumes. It was the first time ever that universal knowledge was organized by subject, by author within subject, and then the authors organized alphabetically in accordance with their names, which is what we still do in bibliographies to this day. Aristarchus of Samos was the first human being to actually say the earth revolves around the sun. His work is not surviving, but we do know we do know that uh, others said, I don't agree with this stupid theory of Aristarchus, which also shows that not only they had freedom of thought, but they had freedom of debate among themselves. And Eratosthenes, who was the third director, he also invited Archimedes to come as a visiting scholar, who stayed two and a half years, and uh, went back. Yeah, she hadn't gone back because he got murdered, as you know. But Eratosthenes was very good. In fact, he even calculated the tilt in the earth axis with enormous precision, and his famous experiment that established not just the curvature of the earth, but actually was able to calculate the circumference of the earth to 98.5% accuracy of our modern measurements. And Hipparchus, his contemporary, calculated the length of the solar year, roughly 365 days and a quarter, not what he calculated to within six and a half minutes of our contemporary measurements. Now, when you think 
what instruments they did not have. <laughs> that's what, that's what I said. This, these are remarkable scientific achievements in their own time. And uh, actually, that system that they had established for the leap year and the fourth year so impressed Julius Caesar when he came that he actually imposed it on the Roman Empire in 44 to 45 or, uh, BC, and it became the Julian calendar, based of the Julian calendar. Our most famous resident <coughs> scholar was Euclid, who actually, well, you know Euclid, I mean, who doesn't know? Archimedes, as I said, was a visiting, uh, was a visiting professor. He of the famous Patia. That did not happen in Alexandria. Um, so give me a space to stand on and I will move the earth. That also did not happen in Alexandria. But what did happen in Alexandria is that he invented the Archimedean screw as a solution for Egyptians to raise the water of the Nile for irrigation. And it is still being used 2,000 years later. You can see this actually being used. Uh, Herophilus was the father of uh, uh, functional physiology uh, and anatomy. And Maneto, uh, historian, wrote in Italia, and he was one of the people who participated in therapies. But he actually recorded ancient history to this day. When we say this pharaoh from the 18th dynasty or from the 26th dynasty, this, this is the classification that Maneto did uh, in the ancient library. Translations, they were not just copying, they were also translating. And it was in the ancient library that the Old Testament was first translated from Hebrew into Greek, the Septuagint, as it's known. And girl students, as I said, were involved in the library from the beginning. Christianity came by St. Mark in 50 AD. And the early fathers lived reasonably well with the philosophers of the ancient library. But there were difficulties with the Romans. So of that great and magnificent achievement of humanity, hardly anything goes directly known. Right now. And I didn't even mention uh, Ptolemy with the Almagest, who uh, returns the Earth to the center of the universe. So contrary to popular myth, it was not destroyed by the Arabs in the 7th century. It was destroyed much earlier in a series of events. Remember, there were three locations. And here is Cleopatra VII who was not particularly beautiful, <laughs> despite what we know of her history and uh, uh, literature and uh, Shakespeare and Hollywood. Uh, she was just had a remarkably charismatic person. She was a, a woman, a young woman of enormous erudition. She spoke five languages. She wrote poetry. She did arithmetic, which for a young princess of 18, 19 is pretty remarkable in her time. And Julius Caesar came pursuing Pompey into Egypt in 48 BC. And she was rolled, that part of the story of the myth seems to be true. She rolled herself in a carpet because her brother kicked her out in terms of ruling Egypt. And the carpet was smuggled into Caesar and it was unrolled. And there was young Cleopatra who convinced him to stand with her against her brother, which he did. And we had the Alexandrian War of Julius Caesar. And uh, the two fleets, Egyptian and the Greek fleet in the harbor, were both set afire. And the fire caught the library building next to the harbor. And as a result, in 48 BC, this building disappears. And depending on who you read, 40,000, 100,000, 400,000 scrolls were destroyed. But it was destroyed at that time. 
Now, Cleopatra and Caesar had a story. They had a son. Caesarion, they went to Rome. She went to Rome with him as his mistress because he was already married. And uh, until the death of Caesar, she took her son and returned to Egypt. And Mark Anthony, friends, Roman countrymen, many millionaires, I come to bury Caesar, etc., etc. He was also formally in love with Cleopatra. And uh, it is a true story, the very most famous love stories of history from Shakespeare to Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> this is Hollywood. This is real Anthony. This is Cleopatra Hollywood. This is Cleopatra real. Now, she was not very beautiful, as you can see. But she had a lot of charisma. And uh, uh, she was very smart, very intelligent, also ruthless. But the question becomes then, how come the two most powerful men of the age, Caesar and Antony, fall madly in love with her? Remember that they were both the masters of the world. If it was just sex, they could have had any slave girl anywhere in the world. <laughs> they were ruling an empire. Vast empire, very powerful, and so on. But Cleopatra was different. And the proof of that, the ultimate proof of that, is that what was the way to her heart that uh, Antony found? He gave her 200,000 scrolls. <laughs> now I ask you, what kind of a woman is it whose way to her heart is a massive book donation to the public library? <laughs> and I say, I say to you, my kind of woman. <laughs> Until Aurelian 
Emperor Aurelian really takes over and he destroys and takes Alexandria back. And the destruction that he launches on Alexandria is so complete that people wouldn't believe that he pursued her. And this is a painting of her in her golden chains. So they made golden chains for her and uh, took her back to Rome in part of the emperor's triumph. But depending a, a general or a nobleman, I'm not quite sure which, fell madly in love with her and married her and uh, she ends her life as a suburban housewife outside of Rome. They had a villa and she ends her days there pleasantly rather than being thrown to the lions and tigers or whatever they did. But in 272 AD, the whole royal district, including the Museum, is destroyed completely and according to the records burnt and not a stone left on top of the other. But because well, that's what Roman emperors did to rebellious provinces. I mean, it was not unusual at the time. But what is important is that in addition to losing the original building of the library, we lost a lot of other things, including the tomb of Alexander the Great. We don't know where it is. We know it's somewhere in what is today downtown Alexandria. The poor Christians were being persecuted even more and more. Till Diocletian comes, and uh, he is the only emperor to have voluntarily retired. But they killed so many people during his accession to the throne uh, that they, it becomes the beginning of the Coptic calendar, the Christian-Egyptian calendar, is in 284, the year of the martyrs. So 2018, Anno Domini, is 1734, the year of the martyr, Anno Martyrum. So this is our Coptic calendar till now because of the enormous persecution that took place at that time. The Coptic Orthodox Church still uses that calendar for their liturgy. Now Constantine the Great, when he embraced Christianity and founded Constantinople, he stopped the persecution of the Christians. But he did not ban other religions. And that would wait for 70 years until Theodosius I would make the Nicene Christianity the official state church of the Roman Empire and ban all other forms of religion, which led to Bishop Theophilus destroying the pagan temple of Serapis. Uh, Serapis had been around from 300 BC to almost 400 AD, almost 700 years, but it was destroyed. And what was remained of the library was a few manuscripts in the hands of the scholars. And the last scholar was Theon of Alexandria, mathematician who wrote about Euclid. But I come to the next remarkable woman, the fourth woman in my story, Hypatia. Hypatia of Alexandria was a remarkable mathematician, astronomer, and uh, in fact, the first woman whose name appears in the Annals of Mathematics and Astronomy. And uh, she was the daughter of Theon but she was killed most brutally by the mob. And this was the beginning of the Dark Ages in Egypt as well as in Europe. They made a movie in which they conflate both the burning of the Serapium and the murder of Hypatia, but uh, Rachel Weisz played the role. That's supposedly her and her father and the Serapium. This is as close as I can get you a picture of Hypatia. It's uh, one of the masks that were painted at that time. 
But scientists recognized her talent, and they named a crater after her on the moon. But it really is the end of the great story of the life of Alexander. It had been destroyed, had been burnt, and now scholarship was to be under the thumb of the church, not an independent place where people think like they used to. So if you look at it, there is no single event where the fire destroyed the library. The whole series of events, almost 450 years in space of time. And it came here of the best in the world, but uh, we have lots of stories. Now, we do know, and I'll tell you in a moment how, the lost heritage of humanity. We know because of the Pinakis that Eratosthenes told the great poet Kalimatis write the catalog. So in the catalog, we have how many were written, for example, Sophocles wrote over 120 plays, of which only seven have survived to this day, because we have the names that Kalimachus organized. And the Pinakis was copied and recopied and recopied. So some errors, you know, 70 to 90 plays, over 120, etc. But generally, we have a sense of what was lost because we were able to find that material. The question then becomes, well, if all of that was burnt and destroyed, how come we have it? How come we have those seven plays? So I need to come back to that in a moment, hold that thought. But then the story continues. 1,600 years later, a fifth woman comes in. And that is Mrs. Suzanne Mubarak, who adopts the idea of recreating the ancient library on the same spot in Alexandria, or the same spot as we can make it. Now, before I get to her, this is the library where it's been created, uh, planetarium, major library building, auditorium, university, and the sea over on this side. What's left today, hardly anything. This is where the Serapeum used to be. There are some Roman things, but they have nothing to do with the ancient library. The, the rubble of the uh, landmark uh, uh, lighthouse was used to build the, this fortress at the time of Taipei, which is 14th century. But in the bay and elsewhere, we have found underwater the remnants of the... Now, doesn't that look just like the one on the coin? For all we know, it could be the one on the coin. But what we do know is that we did pick out of the water the colossal statue of Ptolemy, I said to the antiquities department, bring him home. And we have him standing at the entrance of the new library of Alexandria, he who built the first library of Alexandria. Mm -hmm. So what happened to the destruction of these parts? Well, think with me to a different magical period, which is the Baghdad of the Arabian Nights. Harun al-Rashid, actually talking about the son of Harun al-Rashid, Mahmoud who created the, this is the empire, as we ruled, huge empire, the Abbasid empire, and he created the House of Wisdom, another kind of library, ancient library in Baghdad. But then he uh, uh, gave a lot of money, and he started a huge translation program and into Arabic. He said, anybody who brings an ancient manuscript and translates it into Arabic, will receive its weight in gold, believe it or not. So 
all the old manuscripts that we know today were translated into Arabic, and they received the weight of the translated manuscript in gold. And his vizier, finance minister of his time, told him, Sire, the scientists are cheating. They're writing in big letters on thick paper. Then <laughs> <laughs> Mahmoud said, let them be. What they give us is so much more valuable than the gold we give them. That's a great story I tried to tell my minister of finance. Can <laughs> <laughs> you get anywhere? <laughs> he said to me, uh, too bad that he's not around for you. <laughs> so anyway. What happened then is that not only did Arabic become the language of science for about 600 or 700 years, but more importantly, it became like a huge vacuum cleaner. In every leftover copy of a copy or a small part of a manuscript from the ancient library, if you had it in Tunisia or you had it in, in Libya or in Egypt, you would take it to Baghdad, have it translated and get your share of the gold. So they regrouped all the bits and pieces that could be found at the time. And reassembling all these lost manuscripts, this is Euclidean Arabic, as you can see. And many of these documents were never found in their original, but have survived in the Arabic translations that were made at the time. This is the medieval library. These are books. Now, codexes, of course. We are now talking about 9th century. Codexes have taken over from the 5th century, between 200 and 500. And this is all the scholars arguing with each other, and these are the books in the back there. Until Mr. Hulagouh arrives, and he is the grandson of Genghis Khan. And he comes and totally destroys Baghdad and the House of Wisdom and everything else in it. And uh, that destruction in the middle of the 13th century, 1258, which has been recorded a lot, was a second loss. But we are much more recent period. We are talking now middle of the 13th century. So copies of copies of copies are everywhere. It's no longer like the original 48 BC of Julius Caesar or 271 of Aurelian. This is a different story. And many of these manuscripts have been spread throughout the Muslim Empire. And that creates the setting for the new library of Alexandria. So, Mrs. Mubarak, the fifth of the remarkable women I mentioned, took upon herself, since she was the first lady and her husband was willing to read things about culture to her, to rebuild the library of Alexandria. And we agreed, she and I, she called me in and I said, we have to agree, it is about recapturing the spirit of the ancient library, which was not a library, it was part academy, part research institute, part, part, part with the tools of the 21st century, and she agreed. So this is what we did. We had a landmark building, and uh, it's a very beautiful building. Here's the complex I showed you. Here's the huge granite, which was, has a young woman, uh, 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 from Norway, did the sculptures. This is the way the library looks. It has letters from the alphabets of 125 languages, but no complete words. This is the plaza, which is open, and as you can see, we did not put walls around it. This is going down into the planetarium. This is the view from the library and into the sea. And if you were to lift the ceiling from here, you would see it's divided like that, and this is a beautiful space 
wide open space, and this is the place where we have research institutes and the administration. This is the conference center here. This is the reading room. It's the largest reading room in the world, one of the largest anyway, 2,000 seats. But uh, architecturally stunning, very. And the conference center, this is our large auditorium. And then donations, including this statue in the plaza, that's the planetarium. That is Prometheus bringing fire to humanity. That's the sculptor who gave us the sculpture. It's a hive of activities. It's much more than a building, and it has all of this in it. So let me run you through some of this. This is an average day, looking like that. A good day looks like that. We have over, we reached in 2010 1.4 billion visitors. We're now back to about a million uh, uh, visitors. Lots of children everywhere. David McConnell remembers children, children everywhere. Um, this was my audience for many of the lectures I advertised. I figured, no, I mean, we have to start young. We want to implant the values of rationality and, and, and humanism and so on. You have to start young. Our websites have more than a billion hits, a billion hits, uh, which is amazing. 600,000 reader visits, hundreds of events. We did over 1,000 events. And uh, art classes for young children, concerts, and these are summer concerts, which we did, and uh, international gatherings, annual book fair, and uh, multiple institutions, including all of these institutions here, have their secretariat in the library. And then we are committed to the arts, as well as to the sciences. And as for libraries, well, we have a hybrid library, which is the main reading room. Almost everywhere you have computers and regular reading tables. And there you can see examples of that. And the specialized libraries, we have the library for the visually impaired or the blind. We have the children's library, 5 to 11, and young people's library, 11 to 16. And then multimedia, fair books, microphones, <coughs> map library, and the Internet Archive. The only copy of the Internet Archive outside of San Francisco. And that's Brewster Kale, the inventor of the Internet Archive. We established it there. That's the Internet Archive as it exists in Alexandria. Then uh, people said, well, you know, what are you going to do? You don't have any money, etc." And I said, yeah, I don't have any money. <laughs> and I got a French book donation, 500,000 books, the largest book donation ever. And uh, I laughed with my friends. Uh, in France, and I said, to them, "This is the largest book donation since Anthony gave the 200,000." <laughs> <laughs> and the guy said to me, "Was my friend?" Says to me, "Yeah, but I hope I don't end up like Anthony." <laughs> and I said, "Wait a minute. What do you mean?" Anthony ruled half the world. Anthony had a magnificent love affair with Cleopatra that we're still talking about 2,000 years ago. <laughs> and when Hollywood wanted to represent him, they chose Richard Burton. Who's going to represent you when you write something? <laughs> so I said, mm, come to think of it, being Anthony wouldn't be so bad except for that last part. <laughs> so I said, yeah, well, slightly cheap. So, but with that, for example, we became the fourth largest francophone library outside of France. <coughs> 
we jumped up all of these. Uh, so. Then I had a Dutch book donation of 730,000 books from the Netherlands, from the Royal Tropical Institute in the Netherlands, 90% of them in English dealing with development issues. Plus an ongoing stream of gifts like uh, 22,000 books from Minnesota and others. And people ask me this from Botus Botus Gali, the complete royal edition of the description with Egypt and others. And uh, uh, when people would ask me, you know, how do you find money for that? They don't have money. Uh, maybe charm? I don't know. <laughs> but we have to convince people to donate. So he donated. And we got Elsevier, who had a network based for Africa. They transferred the responsibility to us. And in Alexandria, we linked all these 150 libraries in Africa. And then museums and galleries, we have four former museums as at least recognized, but permanent galleries also fit. One is the Sadat Museum, for President Sadat, who died, as you know, martyr for peace. The Manuscript Museum, this is Manuscript Museum, and Antiquities Museum with donations from all the museums of Egypt. And a Science Museum, Planetarium and Exploratorium together. And this is where the kids get to do hands-on science. It's an important part. But specifically, we want to encourage them to ask, what if, what if, what if? Well, go find out. <laughs> Experiment. Think. You know, this is what we wanted to do. Special outreach to youth. And we have the BA Science Festival. We have 20,000 visitors over three days. You can see the picture here in the plaza. And it's not just the experiments. I like this picture. The kids are happy, they're having fun. I mean, science is not something you have to study and how you're gonna be examined and so on. What is Avogadro's number? <laughs> no, no, I mean, they just have fun, that's good. We have 15 permanent exhibitions and uh, uh, art donated by the artists concerned. These are the different collections, and including folkloric art collections, and 10 more permanent exhibitions. Four galleries for temporary exhibitions. This is the art of Mary Nielsen and Territoriert. And we have, we had 15, but there are now 14 research institutes. And these are the research institutes. So manuscripts, including digitization manuscripts. And incidentally, we would give away uh, CDs with the manuscript digitized on it to visiting scholars who wanted to take complete copies with them. We had seminars. We had a, we had a research institute on scripts and writing. Special studies, which links a virtual network of excellence between researchers in Egypt and researchers elsewhere in the world, and biannual big conference on biology, biovision. Yeah, the, we had David. They were very proud that he would honor us. And we produced, we used to produce books, but now we produce it all online. But initially, we used to publish these books. Then the Center for Documentation of Cultural and Natural Heritage, located in uh, in Cairo. And uh, it was the first non-screen interactive computer presentation patented in Europe and elsewhere. Not so much to get money, but to prove that this was an original invention in the Library of Alexandria. And we're doing it in 3D. ISIS, long before ISIS, <laughs> stood for International School of Information Science. And uh, some of our colleagues here know that uh, very involved with information science and data uh, sciences and so on. And then an art center, we brought the first, we created the first uh, uh, classical uh, orchestra in, uh, in Alexandria, we brought many events, 
the Center for the Study of Alexandria and the Mediterranean, which not only looked at the ancient city, but looked at the modern city as well. And uh, a Center for Hellenistic Studies, which is the only one where we give masters and PhD degrees jointly with the University of Alexandria, and a Center on Democracy and Peace, where we try to mobilize people's intellectuals, Egypt's intellectuals, and talked about the Arab Reform Forum, which was already started in 2003, where we had drafting committees, and specifically women participated in the declaration, so-called Alexandria Declaration of 2004, that was the first one to call for political reform, economic reform, social reform, and cultural reform, where we wanted to change the discourse of politics and media and religion. Sustainable development, we had two centers that were together, one on economic development, one on environmental studies, and merged them into the sustainable development. Arabic computational linguistics, which is very important, we created a huge corpus of 100 million words with 16 lexical qualifiers. Islamic civilization and contemporary thought, in this we reissued the classics, the humanistic classics that people don't find anywhere. We reissued them for a whole new generation of people for the, what was done in the 19th and 20th century and uh, with modern uh, uh, edited critical editions. And uh, we did over 50 volumes in print. Center for Coptic Studies, where we protect the cultural heritage of Coptic Egypt, and Francophone activities, and being the fourth largest Francophone library, we have to do something on Francophone activities. So we had many um, activities there. So these are the research institutes, and that's the new library of Alexandria in terms of recapturing the spirit of the old. But it was born digital. So as a result, we had the, the uh, internet archives. But most importantly is that at your fingertips, you really could have for the first time practically the entire collective knowledge of humanity, whether it's in journals or something. For example, we have 1,100 published journals, but we have 76,000 online journals. So, I mean, the disparity is, is remarkable, but that's the new reality. And we are part of global knowledge, and an enormous analytical work is presented, presented, and done at the library. So, biorobotics, uh, look at this little guy here, now sitting on my lap. And next thing you know, he's out with supermodels on the cover of the <laughs> Just wait in the library for people to come, although many, many came. 
So we did outreach in the universities. This was to take them on excursions to work for the poorer villages around Alexandria. And for the little kids, we had a bookmobile which would go to schools and bring them digital and print copies of various things to play with. We had the art programs, massive expansion of our science clubs. We have 400 science clubs in Alexandria in schools. We created the science fairs, which you saw before, and science competitions. And these kids went on to win international competitions in the United States. We created our own TV studio and our own FM station. We did the local TV science series in Arabic and English. But above all, we have to defend values. And the most important start was March 2004, which afterwards we had every year a big event like this to discuss what was happening in the Arab world. And then I had lots of young people. Uh, this is one not so young librarian <laughs> in the middle of about 600 delegates. And this was the last time we did that in March 2010. Every time, people would say to me, ah, doctor, you know, we come every year and we talk and we talk and nothing happens. Now, of course, by 2011, nobody said anything anymore. <laughs> the whole Arab world exploded as you all know. But this is the kind of things we were doing, audience participation, voting on issues. And this body is really where all the parts are essential, and the whole is more than the common parts. And for me, uh, the librarian at that time, and still till now, I'm like Borges, I believe that uh, I always imagined that paradise would be some kind of library. <laughs> and uh, those who had the pleasure of being involved with libraries will know that this is true. But so what happened when finally, after all the discussions, things exploded? Well, you know, there are times like that in the history of Europe. 1848 is a particular year where we say revolutions were everywhere, even though they were squashed in, in Europe afterwards. But all of these exploded at the same time, as you can see here. So this is the heart of Cairo, Tahrir Square. And this is normally, and this is Tahrir Square, the revolution. We had literally millions and millions and millions of people who went out into the streets until Mr. Mubarak resigned, and then we started the revolution. Some of them were fearless in confronting the police, and they had seemed unstoppable. The idea being that they did not want Mr. Mubarak or his son to replace him. Uh, they wanted to change. Now, what happened in Alexandria? <coughs> Remember this picture? This is the campus of the university. These are two main streets here where all the demonstrations would go. And this side is the, the, uh, the sea, the Mediterranean is on this side. So. <laughs> Nobody touches the library. They defended the library. 
And you can see them here. They have no weapons, no nothing, just scrolls of paper. And they defended the library. And everybody obeyed them. This is a demonstration of the size of demonstrations that you saw passing by here. And then uh, this is prayer time. This is the library. And look how orderly they are in front of the library. Very respectful. Nobody who was told in the library. Ten blocks away, the government house was burned to the ground, as you can see. And so was the party headquarters, so was the police station. So it wasn't obvious that when they would come to the library, they would defend the library. In fact, it goes even better. They made this huge flag, and they brought it and put it like that around the library. And there you go. This is me and my colleagues standing there waving to the demonstrations that were passing through. And this is a demonstration on the other side. This is the university, the other street. And if you look here, you will notice they are holding hands to create a human chain to protect the library. So for me, the, the notion that the young revolutionaries who were opposed to the Mubarak era would still support the library is very important. This is the size of the demonstrations. Uh, is big, very unstoppable. Now, more importantly, these steps suddenly became a favorite place for human rights. So when the Muslim Brotherhood began to appear and to take more of a role, Christians would come to the Library of Alexandria to saying our human rights have to be defended. And uh, liberals, this is the, the crescent and the cross together, hand in hand, which was a symbol for the 1919 revolution in Egypt. And this is another demonstration by Christians on the steps of the library. So the symbolism of the library was not just accepted by the, the young revolutionaries, but in fact it became a rallying cry for anybody who felt threatened. So to me, eight years of hard work, we have very clear contrast between what happened to government house and what happened to the library. And this is one of my favorites. This is a graffiti wall painted by the young revolutionaries. And it says here, we, the youth of the 25th of January, dedicated to those who died in the revolution. So you have the three pyramids, the library as fourth pyramid, but coming out of the library, a church and a mosque together. And I said, the kids got the message. <laughs> they know exactly what it is that we're talking about in all defending values, defending values. They got it. They got it. This was their graffiti. And, uh, and Susan Roth and Zawa uh, Taboraya did the one for, for the, uh, in New York, uh, for kids, hands around the library protecting Egypt's treasure book. This is supposed to be me. <laughs> <laughs> this, however, CNN. Now you're coming back to work. Yes, pretty much. Pretty much. That was quite good. Yeah, you're getting a sense of order back again? Uh, yeah, I hope so. I will speak to them, of course, like anybody else. They're citizens, there are different points of views, there are rumors around that I will speak to them about. See, even our coffee shop is operating. More than 2,000 workers. Everyone happy to be back. There must have been a moment when you were standing there, there was the, 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 the moment for you where you think, no, this could happen and they could come in, and then you saw a change. Our confidence is there from, from the first day. We never built barriers. We never built walls. We never built gates that could be locked. The library is open. The doors of the library are in glass. As you saw on both sides, there's nothing that prevents anybody 
from destroying this building with all its treasures, except the will of the people. And in the end, that is the ultimate guarantor of everything. So your staff coming back to work. Uh, but uh, there was more unrest later on, and no institution was immune, and our Academy of Science in Cairo was burned down. And uh, Seleucids destroyed beyond repair. Seleucids. These manuscripts could not be salvaged. The, uh, the degree of burning that you see here in the structure is just too good. That's for the Academy of Science. Not the library, nobody touched it. And uh, so we were not immune from troubles in the country and uh, faced a wave of unrest and confrontation, but calm discussion. We never resorted to police. We never had anybody hurt. And uh, I was able to convince everybody else. I was taken to court by some people. And uh, as some of you may know, I was given a three and a half year uh, jail sentence by a lower court, which was not only reversed by the appeals court, but the appeals court actually wrote in its final statement that the accusations themselves are total fabrications. There was no crime, which I cherish the ruling of the appeals court on that. And Prometheus, well, he continues being fire to humanity and stands proudly in front of us. But after the revolution itself, 18 months later, the military <coughs> handed over to Morsi, first elected president, and I was able to convince him that he should continue the tradition of the president being the chair of the board, the president of his designate. So this is our board meeting with Morsi. This is the board meeting at the presidential palace. And uh, new problems exploded with the Muslim Brotherhood. These demonstrations are against Morsi. And it was his turn to be pushed out by the demonstrators. But his followers did not behave like uh, Mubarak's followers. I mean, uh, we had real violence in the streets. This is the condition of the streets. And for the first time, the BA was damaged. These two holes here are two bullet holes from stray bullets. But the damage in the glass, this was 2013, was very minor, and it came from straight bullets. I mean, again, as I have told Nick Robertson of CNN, if they really wanted to destroy it, it's glass. <laughs> they could just break the glass and do whatever they want. But they, nobody was trying to destroy the library, continued, and it was not targeted, and continued our work. And so we had to navigate it until we proved that it was truly a national institution. So this is the inauguration with Mr. and Mrs. Mubarak and Mr. Shirak and others. And this is <coughs> Mr. Morsi. And this is with Adli Mansour, who came from president after Morsi. And this is with current President Sisi in 2016, 15 and 16. And this is me next to President Sisi when I told him that I will resign in a year. Now take only one more year. And uh, that was to retire in 2017, which would have been 15 years from the opening of the library in 2002. So to remain true to our mission, we continued. In my last year, I pushed through four last initiatives. First, outreach. We did a complete program of what I called our embassies of knowledge. 
And that means this is where we had some branch offices. Now we have everywhere. Every university, well, not every university, 18 of the 24 universities have special rooms where the Library of Alexandria is represented. Then with ICT, we had a problem with our websites. Me, I like this, because I like to read. But, you know, I wanted to make sure that young people continue to come, so we had a discussion. And they said, nah, nah, boring, boring. So we changed, this is our, these are our various websites. So we changed that to this. They like big pictures, very little text. <laughs> well, as I said, I like the old one, but at the end of the day, I'm not the one who's supposed to be reached by that website. It's them, so we changed to this. And that was not enough. So we had our <coughs> websites were done for computers. And this is not appropriate because the future belongs to handheld devices. So we had to redesign to convert all the websites so they can be looked at in, in this brought us really dramatic success. We had more than a billion hits in the last year. Uh, in 2016 to 2017, uh, we grew from 800 to a billion. And that's very important because 50% came from Egypt. 50%. Now that means that young people, because let's face it, old Egyptians do not spend time clicking on the internet to read uh, stuff about culture. So it's really young people who are doing this. They're there, and the uh, USA is America, all other countries. But So there's, there's at least about a million, 300,000 hits from inside Egypt. So the young people who protected the library, the young people who came to the library, are still in touch with us. And I decided we have to fight extremism, so I believe in the power of ideas. I call, as an expert witness, a guy you all know, Napoleon Bonaparte, who said, do you know what astonished me most in the world? That, of course, he said only in St. Helena. <laughs> the inability of force to create anything. In the long run, the sword is always beaten by the man. And that's a guy who should know because he wrote the civil code, as well as using the sword a lot of time. But so promoting cultural pluralism in the spirit of Albert Camus, who said, don't walk behind me, I may not lead. Don't walk in front of me, I may not follow. Just walk beside me and be my friend. That's what we want to do. To fight extremism, culture, pluralism. This is the Grand Imam, the Sheikh Al-Azhar. And this is the Pope, the Coptic Pope of Egypt. And we reissued, as I said, the classical works of Islam. And we defend the values of rationality, pluralism, and human rights. And above all, we wanted to bring back music, culture, dancing, etc., in the streets. Enough of this austere Wahhabism of uh, ISIS and others like them. So we had 750 events in Alexandria, 350 in Cairo, and Egypt today is surrounded by catastrophic situations. But we had to organize the forces of reason to act against extremism. So I held uh, a big launch event, international event where Christians and Muslims and secularists were all together, where we had different countries of the Arab and Muslim world represented, many parallel sessions, and I created, there was an endowment which I was able to get this very important CV recognizing that there's $143 million that belongs to the Library of Alexandria and the Central Bank, 
and we agreed that we would not withdraw them, but we would get an interest on them. And therefore, with that, I could now be optimistic about the future, and I moved to the future, recognizing that it was time to leave. So three major stages, rebuilding the Library of Alexandria, then navigating the revolution, and then time to exit and over to somebody else 15 years later. A formal process where the board was involved. They selected Dr. Mustafa Fini. We had a smooth handover to a new director. And this first thing he did was to name five research institutes after the names of distinguished Egyptians. So Brahim Shahata passed away in 2001 for the Arabic Computational Linguistics. Sir Yaqub, who's in London, for the HCM, which is the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Program. It was a program, he made it into a center. Myself into the Saragoni Institute for Advanced Multidisciplinary Research. And uh, as a young lady here who was in Haboroni uh, two days ago knows, uh, I am very involved with this kind of stuff. And uh, Zahi Hawass for Egyptology and Amr Musa for Center for Strategic Studies. So beyond tomorrow, who knows? But I say we dare to dream and dare to be bold because the BA is proud to join the artisans of a better future. And these are the artisans of a better future. We stand proud, as they say, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments to scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And thank you very much for your attention.